Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge Church. Whether you're joining us online from our Webster campus or our Rochester campus, we are so glad to have you here today. Got a question for you. Have you ever met someone's kids and when you, know, when you meet them, you think, man, these are really good kids. They're respectful. They obey their parents. Uh, they got good manners. They play nicely with other kids. And maybe you'd say, I'm not impressed with these kids, but I'm impressed with their parents. These have to be some pretty good parents. I need to find some clues for them how to be such a good parent. Maybe they're really intentional with their kids, or you notice how the husband is so supportive of his wife, or how this couple is always investing their time in other people. Maybe you got a friend or a coworker or a neighbor, and you notice how hard they work, how honest they are, they never badmouth anyone, how disciplined they are, they get up early, they take good care of their body, they eat really well. There's some people that you meet and you just think, man, they are a good person. But that raises the question, well, how do you know if somebody is good or bad? Who is good and bad? And I think normally the way that we determine who is good or bad is we take what we know about the person and then we make a judgment. And so what I want to do today, I actually want to do a little exercise with you. I have some pictures of some well-known people, and I want to put them on the screen. And as you look at them, I want you to determine, based on what you know about them, is this person a good person or a bad person? You guys ready? Okay, first person, Martin Luther King Jr. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? No, reason, no raising your hands, uh, no saying anything out loud, aloud, just think in your head. Is he a good person or a bad person. How about Mother Teresa? I mean, if anybody is supposed to be good, it's Mother Teresa, right? Or how about this person, Adolf Hitler, good or bad? What about some of the recent presidents of the United States? President Obama, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Or President Trump, is he good or bad? Now, often in our culture, we would hope that professional athletes would be models to citizens for our society, people that our kids could look up to. So what about maybe the most beloved sports hero in western New York, Jim Kelly? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Or if you're a Bills fan, how about this one, Tom Brady? Good or bad? So as you look at those pictures, some people you'd say, yeah, I think they're a good person. And others you'd say... <laughs> There is not an ounce of goodness in that person. But others, you'd say, you know, I, I'm not really sure. I don't know if I have enough information. When I was a kid, I remember meeting uh, maybe uh, the quote-unquote first famous person I had ever met. I was about 10 years old. I was attending an event. I grew up west of Seattle. And at this event, one of the players for the Seattle Seahawks was there. His name was Eugene Robinson. He was a safety. He spoke at the event. And I remember shaking his hand and thinking, wow, this is cool. I got to meet Eugene Robinson, and a couple years later, he was picked up by the Atlanta Falcons. The Falcons had an incredible season, and they made the Super Bowl, and the night before the Super Bowl, Eugene Robinson received from Athletes in Action the Bart Starr Award for his incredible character, and so he received that award that night. The next day was the big game, but late that night or early the next morning, the news broke that right after receiving that award, Eugene Robinson was arrested for soliciting a prostitute. And, and a guy that we all thought was so good, that I thought was so good, turned out to not be as good as we thought. Well, what about you? 
If someone was to answer the question about you, would they say you are a good person or a bad person? And would their answer change if they knew everything about you? Now, why do we bring up this question about goodness? We're in the middle of a series on the fruit of the Spirit. This is based on Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 and 23, where Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So goodness is one of the character qualities that our life is to be marked by. And all throughout this series, we've been asking the question, is your life marked by these character qualities? And so today we are talking about goodness. Is your life marked by goodness? What would the people who know you say? What about the people closest to you? What would they say? As you examine your own life, knowing only the things that you know about yourself, what would you say? Are you good or are you bad? Now, as we wrestle with this question of goodness, there are two primary questions that I want us to answer today. The first question is this, who is good? Who is good? Are some people by their very nature intrinsically good and other people by their very nature intrinsically bad? Do we do good because we are good or do we do bad because we are bad? And really, your answer to that question depends on your worldview. And so I want to take a look at two ways our world answers the question about who is good, and then contrast those with the Christian worldview. So the first worldview is this, naturalism. Naturalism to the, would answer the question who is good by saying we don't know who is good. Now, what is naturalism? Naturalism is the denial of any supernatural being, any god. It's the belief that all that exists is the material world. And so in a naturalistic worldview, morality, that is what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, well, that is defined by your culture. Humans make their very best effort to determine what is good or bad, but those are culturally defined. And so when we ask the question, who is good or who is bad, well, we can never really be certain. It all depends on what our culture deems is good or bad. Without God, there can be no certainty, no objective answer. The second worldview is humanism. Humanism would say that people are mostly good. Now, what is humanism? Humanism falls within naturalism, and it's the belief that we as humans can build a society where humans flourish apart from God or apart from religion. And it believes that at its core that we as human beings, we can be good and we can do good. And it, and it finds its hope in the good things that we have accomplished in society, like finding cures for diseases, or alleviating poverty, or ending slavery, or advancing technologically. And, and while at times we might grow discouraged by war, and racial tensions, and political turmoil, and abuse of power, and, and we can find ourselves losing our faith in humanity, there is a belief that if we are able to develop a set of shared values that we can create a society where humans flourish and where evil is suppressed. I think Gandhi summarized this perspective well when he said, you must not lose faith in humanity. Humanity is an ocean. If a few drops in the ocean are dirty, the ocean does not become dirty. So naturalism would say we can't know who is good. Humanism would say that we are mostly good. But, but how does that contrast with a Christian worldview? I want to take a look at a conversation with Jesus. Jesus had a young man come to him who was pretty well off and who thought pretty highly about himself. 
And he asked the question that if you're a pastor, if you're a preacher, if you're a religious leader, this is the question that you want everyone to ask you. Look with me at Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. What did he say? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he he drops the big question, and what is Jesus' response to him? Verse 18, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, after hearing that verse and Jesus' answer, you might be raising the question, Is Jesus saying that he's not God or that he's not good? Well, in short, the answer to that question is no, that's not what he's saying. And if you want more information about why that is the case, every week we send out an email. It's called an Equip Email with Resources to Strengthen Your Faith. And we'll have an article in that this week that goes more into detail about why that's not the case. But the second thing that might jump out to you from Jesus' statement here is his answer to the question about who is good? Look with me again at verse 18. He says, no one is good except God alone. So what does the Christian worldview say in answer to the question of who is good? Well, it says a few things, and the first thing is this, that only God is good. Now, we tend to evaluate our goodness respective to the goodness of other people. We see them and we think, am I better than them? Am I worse than them? But we should be contrasting our goodness with the very standard of goodness, God himself. I love this quote from Billy Graham. He says, the word good in the language of scripture literally means to be like God because he alone is the one who is perfectly good. Now, maybe you hear that that answer from Jesus that only God is good, but you struggle with that a little bit. You'd say, you know, I really know some, some good people. And maybe you'd even say, Most of the non-Christians I know are better than the Christians I know. And while it is true that Jesus does say here that only God is good, there is more to the Christian worldview than that. And so I want to take a look at the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of the world, the very beginning of human existence, and see what does God say about us. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. It says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God created humanity. And then in verse 31, he says, God saw all that he had made, that includes us, and he says, it was very good. Now, this passage makes it sound that, like maybe humanism is onto something, or this, this desire in our heart, we want to believe that we are good. Is this passage saying that we are good? It says we were created good. We were created in the image of God. God is good. We are created to reflect his goodness. So if we were created good, does that mean we are good? Well, the humanistic worldview uh, is on to something here that we were created good. What it doesn't take into account is that although we were created good, we are fallen. And all throughout the storyline of Scripture, we see story after story of humanity, be, humanity being confronted by our brokenness. We try to do good, we strive to be good, but we continually do bad. And here's just a few out of many passages throughout Scripture that talk about our fallen nature. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Sin entered the world through one man, this is talking about the first man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Paul goes on in his letter, verse 19, he says, Through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So Paul is saying here that when the first man, Adam, sinned, we all became sinners. 
Earlier in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 3.12, he says, there is no one who does good, not even one. And then later in his letter in chapter 7, he says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Have you ever felt like Paul? You have the desire to do what is good, but when you look at yourself, at your life, you have a hard time carrying it out. From the very beginning of our lives, we are born sinners. We are dead spiritually, and we are separated from God. Now, this doesn't mean that no one does, ever does good. No matter what your worldview, no matter what your set of beliefs, no matter how evil you are, uh, at times we all do good things, and yet our goodness does not measure up anywhere close to, the, to God's standard of goodness. The reality is you don't need a bunch of verses from the Bible, though, to convince yourself that you are not good. All you have to do is simply take a look at your own life. One of the things my wife and I have been working on with our daughters, we have a four-year-old daughter named Eden and a one-year-old daughter named Haven, and we're trying to teach first-time obedience. So when we say, hey, we want you to obey, we want them to obey right away. We have a, a statement we use where we say, you need to obey right away, all the way, with a happy heart. And if you were to ask my daughter Eden, she could probably repeat that to you. Now, for all the parents out there who struggle with enforcing first-time obedience, the struggle is real. I'm right there with you. But a couple of weeks ago, my daughter Eden had a particularly good day of obedience. When we asked her to get ready for bed, she got ready for bed right away. Uh, when we weren't paying enough attention to her, she didn't hit her sister. In fact, she began to pick up her toys and pick up her clothes, and she came to me and said, Dad, look, I organized the shoe closet. And it went over, it was like meticulous. I'm like, what has gotten into my daughter? This is amazing. Well, she woke up the next day, and she was all excited about how good she had been the day before. And she talked with my wife, Laura, and she said, Today, I'm going to be good again. I'm going to do all the same things that I did yesterday. And I love that story from my daughter's life, but I think we can relate to that. We've got days where we do bad and days where we do good, and we want to repeat the days where we do good. And yet when we look at our life, we find ourselves often returning to the bad. And you might have a week or a year or a month or a decade of success in an area of your life only to find that struggle rear its ugly head again, whether that's a struggle with pornography or anger or overeating or overspending or dating the wrong guy or the wrong girl, whether that's hurting other people with your words or struggling with procrastination. We don't need a bunch of verses from the Bible to convince us that we are not good. All we have to do is simply take a look at our own lives. Now, you might say, okay, this is the most depressing message that I have ever heard. I get it. I've got problems. I've got struggles. But I thought you said at the beginning of this message that our life was to be marked by goodness. Are you saying that that's not even possible? Is the Christian worldview saying that that's not possible? Well, that's the second question that I want us to answer today. Can we be good? Can we be good? We want to be good. We strive to be good. Well, the very point of this series is that on our own, we can't. On our own, we cannot have joy, cannot love, cannot be peaceful, cannot be patient, cannot be kind. That on our own, we cannot do good. But the good, the good news is that with God's Spirit, we can. 
And the very point of Galatians chapter 5 is that goodness comes from the Holy Spirit. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And before Paul ever gets to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, a few verses earlier he says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul is saying here that if you have the Spirit of God, you can overcome your sin. And if you've been struggling with the same sin in your life over and over again, do not lose hope. It is not over Paul says in Romans 6, 18, that we are no longer slaves of sin. A couple weeks ago, I hopped in my car uh, to head to church on Sunday morning. I put my key in the ignition. I turned the ignition, and nothing happened. I tried it again, and nothing happened. My battery was dead. And so, thankfully, I had another car in the driveway. I popped the hoods. I connected the jumper cables. I jumped my battery, and my car was good. I headed to church. I was still on time. And I thought, well, maybe I just left the light on or the door cracked open. Hopefully my battery recharges and, I, and I'm good to go from there. After church, I headed back out to my car. I put my key in the ignition, turned it. Again, nothing. My, my battery was done. And thankfully, I had somebody still at church that could jump me and get me on my way. And so from church, I headed over to the auto store and I bought, oh, this is heavy, <laughs> a new one of these. Okay, I think I'm okay. All right. So, a car battery. What might be true is you could have the nicest car in the world, a leather interior, and an amazing sound system, a full tank of gas, brand new spark plugs, but if you do not have a working battery, then your car is useless. Your car is dead, and it's not going to go anywhere. And it's the same thing with our lives. If we do not have the Spirit of God in us, we are dead spiritually, and we cannot do good. But the great news is that with God's Spirit, we can do good. And so the question is raised, do you have the Spirit of God? And really, how do we know if we have God's Spirit? Well, when we wrestle with that question, I want to look at words from two men, maybe the two most influential men in the foundation and spread of Christianity, that is apart from Jesus, and see what their answer to the question of where we get the Spirit of God from. The first person is Peter. Peter is preaching about 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So repent and be baptized, and what? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, he says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believe, that is when you believe the gospel, you were marked in him with a seal. And what was that seal? The promised Holy Spirit. One of the most amazing things that God does is come to dwell inside of all of those who turn from their sin and turn to God. What do what Peter, Peter and Paul say about how he received the Spirit of God? Peter says, repent. That is, turn from your sin and turn to God. Paul says, when you believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again, when you repent, when you turn to God, when you believe the gospel, God's Spirit comes and dwells inside of you, and he changes you. And so my question for you today is, do you have the Spirit of God? Have you ever asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life? 
And if you've never made that decision, we'd love to talk with you about it. You can go to iwant.info. There's a button that says, I want more information about following Jesus. If you fill that out, we'd love to connect with you this week. So when we ask the question, can we be good? The answer is yes, with God's spirit. Now, we started off this message today by asking the question, is your life marked by goodness? And while we recognize that apart from God, we cannot do good, with God's spirit, we can do good. So what is the good that we are to do? How do we uh, have a life marked by goodness? As we wrap up today, I want to share with you two applications. And the first one is this. Do good as God enables you. So Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. So as we just mentioned, any good that we do is a result of the Holy Spirit, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so you might wrestle with this question, well, do I just need to wait until I feel the Holy Spirit? And then once I feel the Holy Spirit, that's when I, that's when I do good? Well, I think Paul answers that question in this passage by saying we need to work out our salvation. That is, we need to do the good. We need to act. But when we act, we recognize that it is God who's doing the work in us. We do good, but when we do good, we recognize it's not us at all. It's God who is doing the good through us. Now, what is the good we are to do? Scripture is full of different ways we can do good, and I want to simply look at one passage that outlines four simple ways that we can do good. And in 1 Timothy 5, Paul is writing about some widows who are well known for their good deeds. And although these are good deeds that widows did, I think they're transferable to all of us. So look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10. Paul writes, This widow is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So according to Paul in this passage, here are four ways with God's help we can do good. And the very first one is to raise kids. Now, some of you who are parents, you might think, man, I don't have time to do extra good things. I got to change diapers. I got to break up fights. I got to be my kid's Uber driver. I got to do laundry. I got to make dinner. I got to break up my kids from fighting. I I do not have time to do good. And and I want to encourage you. The very first thing in Paul's list here of ways that we can do good is simply by bringing up our children. He doesn't say how to be a parent. He just says, raise your kids. And one of the very best things we can do is nurture our children to love God and to love others. It might not be glamorous, it might often be overlooked, but it might be one of the very best ways you can spend your time. And even if you do not have kids, you can be part of raising children, whether that's serving in our children's ministry on Sunday morning, our student ministry on Wednesday night, whether that's babysitting so that a couple can get a breather or delivering a meal to a weary mom, we all have a role that we can play in raising kids. Okay, second way that we can do good is to show hospitality. Now, the word hospitality in the New Testament means something far different than we often think of in our culture. Hospitality is different than entertaining. 
It literally means the love of stranger. One of the best books I've read about the topic of hospitality is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. And she says this in her book. She says, radically ordinary hospitality. And I just want to stop there. I love those three words. Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. And they recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of God's kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. One of the ways we can do good is simply by opening the doors to our apartment, our house, our dorm room. It doesn't need to be big enough, nice enough, clean enough. It's simply inviting a friend, a coworker, a group member, a stranger into your home. And, and as you invite that person in, it might look like pulling out a, a half-eaten bag of chips, leftovers from last night, and just connecting with them as you eat and as you fold your laundry. Really, hospitality, it's less about opening your home, and it's more about opening your life, your mess and all. And, and it could be a brunch on Saturday morning or a play date with kids, or, or it could mean that you find someone who's looking for a place to lay their head at night, and you say, you can call our home your home. Okay, a third way that we can do good is to serve the church. Paul, and so, so where do I get served the church in this passage? Paul says that these widows were well known for the good deed of washing the feet of the Lord's people. It was one simple way that they could serve the church, the body of Christ. What is one simple way that you can serve the church? It could look like standing at a door on Sunday morning as people walk in and offering a smiling face to those who are nervous about walking through the doors of a church for the first time. It might look like changing a diaper. It might look like using your skills to design a website or to do some plumbing or to paint, or it might mean teaching a class. But you can serve the church. And one last way that we can do good would be to help those who are in trouble. Now, it's not too hard if you look around to find people who are in trouble. Uh, but I think if you're looking for people who are in trouble, one of the best places to find them in our church is to jump into a community group. If you're looking for people who've got problems, people who are hurting, which is all of us, it's not going to take very uh, long to find them when you jump into a community group. If all you do is sit in a service on Sunday morning here at Northridge, you will never fully feel um, like you're a part of this church. We were created to live in community with all our warts and with all our mess, and it's as we live in community with others that we can care for each other. A couple other ways that we can help those who are in trouble. One would be to partner with one of our partners, World Relief, to connect with a refugee family, a family that's been ripped out of the whole world, the only world they've ever known, every relationship that they've ever known, and are just looking for someone to welcome them, someone to be a friend. Or you could partner with our care portal team. Connect with a foster care child in our city who is looking for someone to love them. It might be bringing food. It might be providing a bed. It might be providing clothing. But these are, are, are just a few simple ways that with God's spirit, and at, as he helps us, we can 
do good, and we can be good. Now, as we wrap up today, I want to uh, share with you uh, one final takeaway. I want us to rest in God's goodness. A couple years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to buy our first home, and I often say, uh, as we were looking for a home, I've actually had spent more time researching buying socks than I've had time to make a decision on the home that I'd want to buy. But I remember going to a website and looking at pictures of a home that we wanted to buy, and we liked it enough that we went to an open house. And in about 30 minutes at an open house, we had to make the decision, uh, do we like it enough? Uh, are there enough good things about it that we want to buy this house? We liked it enough, we had a, a, an inspector look at the house and he noticed some other things that needed to be fixed and needed to be broken, but we went forward with the house, we bought the house two years ago, and over the last year and a half, we've had plenty of opportunities to fix things up in our house. This summer, we had our roof replaced, we had a only three-year-old water heater that broke, and so we had to replace that. We had to fix the kitchen sink, fix the oven, replace the toilet. And the more things that we fix, the more things we recognize are broken and need to be fixed. And isn't that the same thing with our life? The more things we fix, the more we chip away at the bad, the closer we grow to Jesus and grow in sanctification, instead of growing more confident in our goodness, we become more and more painfully aware of our past sin and our present sin. And yet the more aware we are of our sin, the more grateful we are for Christ's sacrifice for us. At the beginning of our faith, we don't place our faith in Christ and ask him to be the forgiver of our sins and then place our future confidence in our goodness. But we place our confidence and our identity in God's goodness for us. And I love this uh, word from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.21. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God literally took our badness so we could have his righteousness, so that we could literally become the goodness of God. You can never be good enough, but God has been good enough for you. And so as we strive to live a life marked by goodness. Let's rest in his goodness for us. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you uh, took our sin upon yourself. You literally became the sin uh, that we commit every day. And you did that in order that you might give us your righteousness so that when you see us, God, as we stand before the throne of God, you no longer see our sin but you see the righteousness of Christ, the purity of Christ, the goodness of Christ. As we wrestle with our sin and our struggles in our life, God, I pray that you'd help us to walk in the Spirit this week. Help us to obey you and help us recognize it's not about us at all. I pray that as we live, as we seek to do good, God, that people would not see us, but they would see our good works and they would, that they would glorify you, our God in heaven. I pray all these things in your name, Jesus.